Japan's Empire Disaster Written by Jean Sennett Flurry May 2018 I received an email from my daughter Jennifer inviting me to Seoul for a college graduation. She had just finished her degree in global finance at Dongguk University. Two days later, I called her to confirm that I would attend. I was excited. First, I could see my oldest daughter years after she left our home in Boston. Second, a visit to South Korea would offer me the opportunity to learn more about the part of World War II that happened in the Far East and the Pacific. My interest and concern about the war was more than a curiosity. My bridge partner Richard Silverman who passed away 12 years ago was a World War II veteran. He was 19 years old when having to fight ashore during the invasion of Normandy in Operation Overlord 1. One of the great benefits of Richard's friendship was the opportunity to hear him tell his stories about the war and then about what life was like for him afterwards. It was my 19th birthday, he said. Escaping my plan to go to college, I decided to join my older brother at war. After the German army invaded France in June 1944, I was posted at Kalmar, a small town located 50 miles away from the German border. I participated in the liberation of Strasbourg during the Alsace campaign November 1944 to March 1945 in the last months of the Second World War. They told us it would be a difficult task. However, I didn't expect to go through a suicide mission. The fighting was brutal. We ran into some panzer divisions nobody seemed to have knowledge of their existence. In the morning of January 5, 1945, four months before World War II ended in Europe, I was captured and sent to a labor camp near Dresden, Germany, at 390 miles away from Strasbourg. The camp commandant in broken English told me, American prisoners were simply killed after they arrived here. We shot them like animals. Almost naked, I saw the laughing German commandant who was standing some two meters from me and screaming his injurious words in my face. Fate intervened. Two months later, British and American planes began raining firebombs on Dresden. The prison camp took a direct hit and I was able to escape through a broken wall. The horrors I saw over the last 60 days that I spent at the camp would haunt me for the rest of my life. Being a witness to such war crimes was a tragic experience that I don't want to remember and I don't want anyone to ever endure. In 2010, I met Mario Sullivan during the National Bridge Tournament in Las Vegas, United States. Deployed to the Pacific two years after the Japanese attacked the United States Naval Fleet at Pearl Harbor, Mario also was a veteran of World War II. Initially, he was put to work cataloging thousands of encrypted Japanese radio messages that American listening posts were intercepting each day. Japanese leaders using German technology believed messages encrypted by the German Enigma machines that could generate 103 sextillion combinations, and messages encrypted with the katakana characters the phonetic Japanese script, were all but unbreakable. However, in the months since the start of the war, the intelligence unit Hypo, under Captain Joseph Rochefort, had developed sophisticated decrypting techniques. Using coding clues picked up from the papers of a downed Japanese aircraft at Pearl Harbor, Rochefort and his team broke the JN-25 code. I didn't really know what war was, Mario said. I only knew it was an armed conflict between two or several nations, and all the countries involved have to respect international law. I was wrong. From my experience in the Pacific and East Asia, I learned another side of going to war. The Japanese were very brutal to their prisoners. A soldier who decided to surrender rather than die would be used for medical experiments and target practice. 
Allied prisoners of war captured by the Japanese were beaten to death, beheaded, buried alive, cut into pieces, and in some cases eaten by starving to death Japanese soldiers. Then Mario continued, Thousands of American POW during World War II were made to work in a very harsh environment in Japan's war industry. Many of them died of starvation, illness, or abuse. Those POW were routinely beaten, starved, and abused. They were forced to work in mines and factories in violation of the Geneva Conventions. As we became friends, Mario often explained how those years of war had permanently changed his life. He was a young college student when he was told the country needed volunteers to fight the Germans and the Japanese during World War II. He'd accepted without hesitation to engage in the army. I didn't dream a career in the armed forces, said Mario, but I really believed it was my duty to serve the United States of America and defend the democratic ideals. I felt lucky to have met these two men who fought worlds away from each other. Richard in the Atlantic and Mediterranean, and Mario in the Pacific and Southeast Asia. Memories of them and the stories they told persuaded me to research and write books about World War II for my own education and for readers yet unknown to me. The inspiration for my first book, Adolf Hitler. Trial in absentia at Nuremberg came from conversations with Richard who believed it was a mistake for the Allies not to accuse, indict, and try Adolf Hitler in absentia at Nuremberg.7. He said this was because, at the time of the trial, the prosecutors were unsure whether Hitler was alive. In fact, at the end of May 1945, the Soviet-Russian dictator, Joseph Stalin, had declared to the American delegation led by William and Verrill Harriman that Hitler was alive, hidden somewhere with his private secretary Martin Bormann and his chief of staff Hans Krebs. Later, Stalin declared to Churchill that Hitler had fled by submarine to Japan and he could be in Argentina or Spain. The five Red Army law clerks who examined the remains of Hitler on May 8, 1945, did this work clandestinely. The simple statement of German Gestapo, Heinrich Muller, revealing to the U.S. CIC that he had arranged the escape of Hitler to Barcelona on April 22, 1945, is an element of doubt sufficient to consider Hitler as disappeared at this time and allow his trial at Nuremberg. Like Richard, I formulated the same remarks. Why did the Soviets hide the results of the autopsy they performed on the body they claimed was Hitler? It was not until 1972, at the 6th International Meeting of Forensic Sciences in Edinburgh, Scotland, that Dr. Reiter Fosk-Sognes, a dental expert at the University of California, Los Angeles, UCLA, discovered that the images of the corpse prostheses in Hitler's files exactly matched those of the radiographic plates of Hitler's teeth taken by a German dentist in 1943. All of this, combined with conversations with Mario, inspired me to write a companion book, The Trial of the Emperor, Hirohito Guilty or Innocent. In similar fashion to my book on Hitler, I asked, why wasn't Japan's Emperor Hirohito, an acknowledged war criminal, tried in Tokyo's after the war in the Pacific. As emperor, Hirohito was the ultimate controller of all of Japan's war operations. From his very first arrival on scene, years before, he had invoked massively armed parades to formalize his militarization of Japan as part of his vast plan to attack, subdue, and occupy all of Japan's neighbors. As I learned in August 1945, before Japan's surrender, Jen, Douglas MacArthur had already ordered Allied prosecutors to list those they would bring to trial. It fell to Jen, 
Bonner Fellers, who served as military secretary for MacArthur, to decide whether to include Hirohito's name on the list. Fellers noted that Hirohito, in his role as commander-in-chief of the Imperial Japanese Army and the Imperial Japanese Navy, was neither ignorant of the military's innumerable crimes nor blameless of them. To Fellers, the emperor's guilt was evident. However, he feared that Japan, devastated as it was, could fall to communism. Therefore, he concluded, Japan's destiny is at stake. We must maintain the imperial regime. But as I read, compared, and digested many sources, the take-home message to me was constant and definite. Emperor Hirohito should have been indicted and put on trial as a war criminal. His trial would have decisively condemned crimes against peace, war ethics, and crimes against humanity. Contrary to Fellers and MacArthur, former United States Secretaries of State Dean Goodaran Aikson and Cordell Hull were among those who told President Harry Truman that Hirohito had to be charged with war crimes. Aikson said that liquidating the imperial system was the ultimate way to democratize Japan. In a lengthy report on October 4, 1946, George Acheson Jr., advisor for Supreme Commander for the Allied Powers, argued that Hirohito was a war criminal and that the imperial system must disappear in order to the country to become a democratic state. Opposing Acheson, MacArthur told his staff that Hirohito was emperor by inherent birth, but in that instant, I knew I faced the first gentleman of Japan in his own right. MacArthur also confided that, at first, I arrived here with the intention of treating the emperor more harshly, but this was not necessary. He is sincere, authentic, and he is a liberal man. According to Koichi Kiyo, who served as the Lord Keeper of the Pretty Seal of Japan from 1940 to 1945 and was the closest advisor to Hirohito throughout World War II, MacArthur said that Hirohito is best placed to know the important men of his country's political universe. So, I'd like to hear his opinion on different topics. Ultimately, the victors made geopolitical excuses for not putting Hirohito on trial before the International Military Tribunal for the Far East IMTFE. However, there is no doubt that as the face of the nation, he was culpable and should have been tried. Although some said he was at first reluctant to start World War II, he nonetheless welcomed the Japanese success at Pearl Harbor in 1941 and the subsequent victories early in the war. Based on archives and historical records, Hirohito was a war criminal. Ultimately, the victors made geopolitical excuses for not putting Hirohito on trial before the International Military Tribunal for the Far East IMTFE. However, there is no doubt that as the face of the nation, he was culpable and should have been tried. Although some said he was at first reluctant to start World War II, he nonetheless welcomed the Japanese success at Pearl Harbor in 1941 and the subsequent victories early in the war. Based on archives and historical records, Hirohito was a war criminal. On November 13, 1948, Sir William Webb, the president of the tribunal, declared, This immunity of the emperor is contrasted with the part he played in leading the war in the Pacific is, I think, a matter which the tribunal should take into consideration in imposing the sentences. Thus, Hirohito's trial that did not take place became a simulated exercise in my previous book, The Trial of the Emperor, Hirohito Guilty or Innocent. In it, I created an international opinion tribunal with five judges from different countries to lead the proceedings. 
based on the fictionalized charges from 180 Chinese survivors of Japan's Biological Weapons and Torture Unit 731. The symbolic result was the condemnation of Hirohito as a war criminal. On July 22, 2018, I arrived in Seoul. The long flight from Boston with a layover in Chicago made me extremely tired. The morning after my arrival, I went to my daughter's graduation. In the days that followed, I spent a good deal of time touring museums, libraries, and other cultural sites. From my visits, I gained an idea of how difficult life in Korea was during Japan's occupation, and to what degree the war had affected the population that, in 1950, only five years after World War II, resumed wartime suffering. My visit to Korea's War Memorial Museum was fascinating and instructive. Located in Yongsan-dong district in Seoul, the museum opened in 1994 on a former army base location to exhibit, educate, and memorialize the country's military history, actors, victims, and events that led to the modern nation-state. The following day, Jennifer drove me to see Odimun Prison History Hall. The prison was opened on October 21, 1908, under the name Jonseon Gamak. During the early part of the Japanese colonial period, it was known as Keijo Prison. Its name was changed to Siodimun Prison in 1923. Now a museum, it was used during the Japanese occupation of Korea from 1910 to 1945 to imprison Korean liberation activists. Walking through the Siodimun halls, my broken heart made me feel like I had arrived at the end of the world. I stopped at the room of isolation, where prisoners were forced to sit, squat, or stand without moving for hours. I tried to imagine the terror and suffering of those who were placed in torture chambers. I visited with tears in my eyes the room of Indosol, where the most indomitable prisoners were relegated. Some were bound to the railings of beds by double chains that restrained their movement. Guards then beat them with canes. Other prisoners were stripped naked to benches, hands tied behind backs, while guards struck them violently. Visiting the torture room was a terrible experience for me. It is said that in this room thousands of prisoners died from torture. It is said that in this room thousands of prisoners died from torture. They were subjected to all kinds of physical and mental torment. Restriction of movements, use of handcuffs, thumb screws, ropes and irons, deprivation of food, water, sleep and light, and denial of toilet during interrogations. The prisoners were beaten with fists, feet, and blows with various instruments. Water torture was prevalent today known as waterboarding where guards cover prisoners' faces with cloths, then inundate the captives' heads to make breathing impossible. Contaminated bathwater from previous victims was frequently used. By the time I departed Seoul, I knew more than I ever did about the Pacific War, and especially about the Japanese occupation of Korea before and during those years. I began to understand the Japanese agenda for annexing Korea and invading China and other countries in the Pacific and East Asia. The agenda was about development and domination, both self-serving and exclusionary. Its seeds were Japanese ideology of divine right and blind obedience and delusions of racial superiority. Some of the techniques, justifications, and rationalizations were imitation of what Japan learned from Western Empire nations that it came to hate. It was not just that Japan depended on imports for industrialization. It was also about how Japan would acquire or be entitled to those resources. 
returning to Massachusetts with copious notes and other materials from my visits to places like Seoul Metropolitan Library and Starfield Library, I felt I had gathered enough published information to write a book on the fall of Japan. A working title emerged from my longtime friend Stuart Laterman, an educator, environmentalist, and humanitarian. He suggested, Japan's Empire Disaster. I thought this title was excellent, and from it I immediately asked him, why was Japan's empire a disaster? While Richard and Mario were World War II veterans, Stuart is a bit younger. He was born early in 1945, six months before Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Before his parents married in 1944, his father worked in accounting at the Washington, D.C. Navy Yard. His mother and her sister traveled more than a thousand miles from their home in Iowa to work in the government's war administration in Washington. All six of their brothers, Stuart's uncles on his mother's side fought in the war as flyers and fortunately survived. Stuart remembers his mother keeping a small collection of Pacific War era currency his uncles carried back from overseas. Stuart told me about the relative deprivation of American families during the war years when commodities were strictly rationed and about the atmosphere in America after the war when the country began to import floods of cheap and inferior goods of all kinds that consumers called Japanese junk. Clearly, there are more stories about the war and post-war, workers, economies, victor-loser relations, etc. Still to be told. Stewart was honest with me when he answered my question quite generously and fully as follows. Although I have learned, read, and watched both fact and fiction about Japan Empire over the years, I have not systematically studied it nor sought to study it, nor visited Japan, nor have I had significant Japanese friends, colleagues, or clients. And despite its superficial post-war commitment to pacifism, Japan's disastrous adoption and proliferation of nuclear power plants and the known catastrophic earthquake zone of the Western Pacific Rim has caused further disastrous world consequences. The Fukushima explosion and contamination. This tells us its empire mentality is still there. Neither its citizens nor its neighbors are safe. Japan's empire was a disaster because it caused the overwhelming individual and societal mental stress of deciding whether its actions were forgivable. This at a time when people and nations should be focused on their immediate and likely coming emergencies and disasters. With that said, beyond his friendly and helpful interest in my themes and concept, Stewart also helped with the quality of the manuscript, especially through suggestions on the sequence, structure, and content of the chapters. He encouraged me to write a blockbuster of a book, not just publish a catalog of people, places, and events. Among others, of course, I am so thankful that my daughter Jennifer invited me to her graduation in South Korea and invited me around Seoul. I wonder myself if I would have been motivated to write this book so passionately without traveling to Asia. My principal thanks go to my wife, Joanna Gleason, to whom I dedicate the book. She has helped me afford to travel and continue my research and writing. I particularly want to thank Charlie Granvorka for taking her valuable time to read the manuscript and advise me through the succession of drafts. Charlie made insightful comments and accepted that I used some of her remarks written for one of my previous book. I would also like to thank Prof. Jacques Raphael Georges, Prof. Ginny Griman, Sarah Cataret, John Gallagher, Max Jobbert, Mejin Fleury, and Rikot Ormijust, among others, for reviewing the manuscript and helping prepare the final version. Elfo we have never met, 
I feel nonetheless indebted to Professors Herbert P. Bix and John W. Dower for their tremendous, original research on Japan in the Pacific War. The information that they provided in their respective books, Hirohito and The Making of Modern Japan, Bix, and Embracing Defeat, Dower, have been rich and inspiring sources for me. Reading these two books helped me to structure my content. I also thank Francis Pike for his book, Hirohito's War, The Pacific War 1941-1954, that thoroughly covers that terrible period and prof. Noriko Kawamura, who wrote several books on Japanese history. Finally, I thank all others who have toiled, written, and published on the subject, each one contributing something new. I have tried to do likewise. Japan's empire disaster bows to and remembers all the millions killed in combat and the forcible occupation of foreign lands during the 50 years of Japanese armed aggression covered in this book. I wish particularly to remember the victims of the Nanking Massacre, Pearl Harbor, the Bataan Death March, the innocent sex slaves, the fatalities from Hiroshima and Nagasaki, the victims of Japan's cruel and murderous Unit 731, and similar secret killing places. I hope the readers will come to realize a. why wars start, b. the atrocities that ensue, c. the costly, necessary task of ending wars, d. and the need to live on Earth without violence. The details are in my end notes. In fact, inside secret laboratories in China, Japanese military and civilian medical personnel conducted experiments on human subjects without their consent. As early as 1930, General Shiro Ishii, in his role as professor of immunology in his laboratory in Tokyo, began to conduct secret involuntary experiments on humans. Having the strong political support of Minister of Health, Koizumi Chikadeko, and General Nagata Tetsuzen, Ishii and his men experimented on thousands of prisoners. The Japanese doctors employed vivisection to examine body parts for experiments. General Katano Masaji, the second commander of Unit 731, played the role of sending back lab technicians to Japan in order to bring rats for breeding fleas in Singapore. According to a lab technician, two planes were required to transport the rats, estimated to number approximately 30,000. Looking at the past and analyzing all those facts, I must say, any discussion on COVID-19 requires an examination of the unethical biomedical experimentation conducted by Japan scientists during the years leading up to the Pacific War and throughout the war. The question is, how what happened inside Unit 731 in Manchuria, nine decades ago, had opened the road to unethical biomedical experimentation in China and other countries in the world? A historical book. After publishing my book on Hirohito's responsibilities in the Pacific War, essentially an episodic biography, my motivation to keep writing has grown with my horror at each additional detail learned about Japan's beliefs, policies, and practices from 1895 to 1945. Japan's Empire Disaster is a book of information and training, a reference document that I would like to present as an educational tool not as a catalog of events or an exhaustive profile in malevolent behavior. At minimum, I would like readers to be outraged at the phenomenon of invasion, per se. Emperor Hirohito was not just titular head of an island country. He was responsible for war in the Pacific and Southeast Asia, for how it unfolded and for the crimes of his soldiers, diplomats, emissaries, and businessmen. In this book, I realistically portray Hirohito, 
who was, by his position as a constitutional monarch, in charge of protecting Japan's national entity, Kokutai, and commander-in-chief and spiritual leader of Japan, as a war criminal. By examining newly available historical records, as well as revaluating the works of many scholars and historians, I expose his true personality. A politically astute man who possessed the ability to make his own judgments with considerable objectivity. Gene Sennett Fleury, 2020. Part 1. Chapter 1. From Samurais to Soldiers. Determined to challenge Japan's centuries-old trade isolation, Matthew Calbraith Perry, 59 years old, Commodore of the United States Navy, left Norfolk, Virginia on November 24, 1852, in command of the East India Squadron. Brother of Olivier Hazard Perry, the hero of Lake Erie, Matthew made his name in the Mexican War. For all his achievements, he was the right man for the mission of opening Japan to trade. Traversing the length of the Atlantic Ocean, he rounded the Cape of Good Hope at the far southern tip of Africa and then crossed the wide expanse of Indian Ocean to the Orient. Perry's first ports of entry were Singapore, Hong Kong, and Shanghai. And despite its superficial post-war commitment to pacifism, Japan's disastrous adoption and proliferation of nuclear power plants in the known catastrophic earthquake zone of the Western Pacific Rim has caused further disastrous world consequences, e.g. the Fukushima explosion and contamination. This tells us its empire mentality is still there. Neither its citizens nor its neighbors are safe. Japan's empire was a disaster because it caused the overwhelming individual and societal mental stress of deciding whether its actions were forgivable. This at a time when people and nations should be focused on their immediate and likely coming emergencies and disasters. With that said, beyond his friendly and helpful interest in my themes and concept, Stewart also helped with the quality of the manuscript, especially through suggestions on the sequence, structure, and content of the chapters. He encouraged me to write a blockbuster of a book, not just publish a catalog of people, places, and events. Among others, of course, I am so thankful that my daughter Jennifer invited me to her graduation in South Korea and guided me around Seoul. I wonder myself if I would have been motivated to write this book so passionately without traveling to Asia. My principal thanks go to my wife, Joanna Gleason, to whom I dedicate the book. She has helped me afford to travel and continue my research and writing. I particularly want to thank Charlie Granvorka for taking her valuable time to read the manuscript and advise me through the succession of drafts. Charlie made insightful comments and accepted that I used some of her remarks written for one of my previous book. I would also like to thank Prof. Jacques Raphael Georges, Prof. Ginny Griman, Sarah Cataret, John Gallagher, Max Jobbert, Mejin Fleury, and Rickot Ormagest, among others, for reviewing the manuscript and helping prepare the final version. Although we have never met, I feel nonetheless indebted to Professors Herbert P. Bix and John W. Dower for their tremendous, original research on Japan and the Pacific War. The information that they provided in their respective books, Hirohito, and the making of modern Japan Bix and Embracing Defeat Dower have been rich and inspiring sources for me. Reading these two books helped me to structure my content. I also thank Francis Pike for his book, Hirohito's War, The Pacific War 1941-1954, that thoroughly covers that terrible period and prof. Noriko Kawamura who wrote several books on Japanese history. Finally, I thank all others who have toiled, written, and published on the subject, each one contributing something new.
I have tried to do likewise. Japan's empire disaster bows to and remembers all the millions killed in combat and the forcible occupation of foreign lands during the 50 years of Japanese armed aggression covered in this book. I wish particularly to remember the victims of the Nanking Massacre, Pearl Harbor, the Bataan Death March, the innocent sex slaves, the fatalities from Hiroshima and Nagasaki, the victims of Japan's cruel and murderous Unit 731, and similar secret killing places. I hope the readers will come to realize a. Why wars start, b. The atrocities that ensue, c. The costly, necessary task of ending wars, d. And the need to live on Earth without violence. As I complete my writing, I express my deepest sympathies to today's victims of the novel coronavirus disease COVID-19, a deadly pandemic that evidently grew from an outbreak in Wuhan, China, and has spread across the world, infecting millions. Imagine the irony of my learning that 85 years ago, during World War II, the Japanese conducted bacteriological weapons experiments on captured Chinese during the occupation of Manchukuo. The details are in my endnotes. In fact, inside secret laboratories in China, Japanese military and civilian medical personnel conducted experiments on human subjects without their consent. As early as 1930, General Shiro Ishidai, in his role as professor of immunology in his laboratory in Tokyo, began to conduct secret involuntary experiments on humans. Having the strong political support of Minister of Health, Koizumi Chikahiko, and General Nagata Tetsuzen, Ishii and his men experimented on thousands of prisoners. The Japanese doctors employed vivisection to examine body parts for experiments. Lieutenant General Katano Masaji, the second commander of Unit 731, played the role of sending back lab technicians to Japan in order to bring rats for breeding fleas in Singapore. According to a lab technician, two planes were required to transport the rats, estimated to number approximately 30,000. Looking at the past and analyzing all those facts, I must say, any discussion on COVID-19 requires an examination of the unethical biomedical experimentation conducted by Japan scientists during the years leading up to the Pacific War and throughout the war. The question is, how what happened inside Unit 731 in Manchuria nine decades ago had opened the road to unethical biomedical experimentation in China and other countries in the world? A historical book. After publishing my book on Hirohito's responsibilities in the Pacific War, essentially an episodic biography, my motivation to keep writing has grown with my horror at each additional detail learned about Japan's beliefs, policies, and practices from 1895 to 1945. Japan's Empire Disaster is a book of information and training, a reference document that I would like to present as an educational tool, not as a catalog of events or an exhaustive profile in malevolent behavior. At minimum, I would like readers to be outraged at the phenomenon of invasion. Emperor Hirohito was not just titular head of an island country. He was responsible for war in the Pacific and Southeast Asia, for how it unfolded and for the crimes of his soldiers, diplomats, emissaries, and businessmen. In this book, I realistically portray Hirohito, who was, by his position as a constitutional monarch, in charge of protecting Japan's national entity Kokutai, and commander-in-chief and spiritual leader of Japan as a war criminal. By examining newly available historical records, as well as revaluating the works of many scholars and historians, I expose his true personality. 
a politically astute man who possessed the ability to make his own judgments with considerable objectivity. Part 1. Chapter 1. From Samurais to Soldiers. Determined to challenge Japan's centuries-old trade isolation, Matthew Calbraith Perry, 59 years old, Commodore of the United States Navy, left Norfolk, Virginia on November 24, 1852, in command of the East India Squadron. Brother of Olivier Hazard Perry, the hero of Lake Erie, Matthew made his name in the Mexican War. For all his achievements, he was the right man for the mission of opening Japan to trade. Traversing the length of the Atlantic Ocean, he rounded the Cape of Good Hope at the far southern tip of Africa, and then crossed the wide expanse of Indian Ocean to the Orient. Perry's first ports of entry were Singapore, Hong Kong, and Shanghai. Before continuing northward to Japan, he took his modest fleet of four vessels, two of them coal-burning black ships, into the port of Naha in the Ryukyus Islands. There, he threatened that he would occupy Shuri Castle if the Okinawan government refused his demand to open their ports to American ships for trade. Without any resistance, the Ryukyu government accepted. In the late afternoon of July 8, 1853, Perry's four black ships, the steamers Susquehanna and Mississippi, and the sloops Saratoga and Plymouth anchored off the town of Uraga in the Bay of Shimoda. Perry's mission was to force Japan to accede to diplomatic and trade relations with the United States. When representatives of Japan's hereditary military rulers, the Tokugawa shogunate, told him to leave, he refused and threatened to bombard the city if the Japanese didn't allow him to deliver a letter from President Millard Fillmore. For effect, he fired blanks from his fleet's 93 cannons. Then he ordered his men to begin surveying the coastline and surrounding waters over the objections of local officials. To the Japanese, the encounter was unprecedented. They were paralyzed by indecision, made worse by the illness of Tokugawa Ieyasu. On July 11, 1853, Abe Masahiro, the chief counselor Raju, after talking with the Uraga magistrate, decided that simply accepting a letter from the Americans would not violate Japanese sovereignty. He invited Perry to come ashore. On July 14 at Kurihama, Perry handed President Fillmore's letter to the shogunate and told them he would return for a reply. Seven months later, in February 1854, Perry returned to Japan with a larger war fleet, four sailing ships and three steamers, carrying 16,000 men-at-arms. The Japanese had prepared a draft treaty, and after a brief diplomatic standoff, negotiations began. On March 31, 1854, Perry co-signed what became known as the Convention of Kanagawa, or Kanagawa Treaty, that promised a permanent Japanese-American friendship. The treaty allowed U.S. Ships including warships to obtain fuel and other supplies at two minor Japanese ports enabled a consulate to be established at Shinoda and paved the way for trading rights. An instrumental in the signing of the Convention of Kanagawa in 1854, Abe Masahiro did not sign the treaty or participate in the negotiations. This was done by his plenipotentiary Hayashi Akira. Edwin P. Hoyt wrote, The American success was followed by frantic European action. The British sent Sir James Sterling to secure a treaty, and he did. The Russians sent Admiral Yefemy Vasilyevich Pudyatin back to Japan, and he got a treaty in 1855. Then came the Netherlands, then France, all jumping on the bandwagon.
The result was a powerful reaction among the barons to throw all the rascally foreigners back out, and thus began a new struggle for power in Japan, with the foreigners at the center of it, and the barons lining up either with the Tokugawa shogunate or the Imperial Restoration Party. To the shogun officials, the meeting with Perry was significant in more ways than trade. They obviously took special note of American technology, exemplified by the expedition's sea power, weaponry, and global reach. It gave them ideas how to challenge China for control of the Orient. One year after signing the Kanagawa Treaty, the Japanese established their Imperial Navy. The same year, in 1855, they opened schools in Edo, where young Japanese studied foreign languages and attended lectures by foreign engineers, physicists, chemists, and other technologists and scientists. On August 4, 1855, Townsend Harris accepted an appointment as consul to Shimoda, and then the United States established consular relations with Japan. Full diplomatic relations were established on July 29, 1858, with the signing of an official accord by the U.S. Consul General Townsend Harris and the Japanese representatives at the Japan capital of Edo in Tokyo. Two years later, in 1860, Japan sent an official mission to the United States to celebrate the Kanagawa Treaty's ratification. This first delegation included some prominent figures such as Fukuzawa Yukichi, an education and publishing magnate, who was already very active at encouraging the westernization of Japan. The visitors were amazed by scenes of American prosperity and development. They saw railroads connecting thousands of miles of territory, tall buildings made of iron and steel foundries pounding out rails, girders, and sheet metal. When the mission returned to Japan, all the details were reported to the shogun. Persecuting Foreigners Between 1860 and 1863, terror against foreigners was common in Japan. Even Japanese were assassinated when seen as too pro-Western. In 1862, the British merchant Charles L. Richardson was killed by a Satsuma samurai after failing to respect the tradition of giving way to a clan procession. That incident led to major diplomatic problems between Britain and Japan. On March 11, 1863, Emperor Komai issued an edict named The Order to Expel Barbarians, Joi Shukume or Joi Jiko no Shukume. It was an ordinance against the westernization of Japan following the opening of the country by Perry in 1854. The ordinance was based on widespread anti-foreign and legitimist sentiment called the Revere the Emperor, Expel the Barbarians Movement. Emperor Komai personally agreed with such sentiments, and breaking with centuries of imperial tradition began to take an active role in matters of state. He publicly protested against the signing of the convention and attempted to interfere in the shogunate succession. Because of his opposition to the treaty, attacks began against the shogunate who refused to enforce the edict, as well as against foreigners in Japan. The most common incidents were the firing on foreign shipping by Choshu forces in the Shimonoski Strait off Choshu province. The Western powers, such as Great Britain, France, the Netherlands, and the United States responded by bombarding Shimonoski in 1864. The British requested the Tokugawa shogunate government to pay an indemnity of 100,000 pounds for Richardson's death. A squadron of British Royal Navy warships went to the Satsuma port of Kagoshima to pressure the Daimyo Shogun. Instead, the Japanese opened fire on the English ships, and the squadron retaliated. 
These events had direct consequences on the Shogunate, which had been seen too powerless and compromising in their relations with Western powers. In 1865, the Choshu clan rebelled against the Tokugawas and overthrew the Shogunate in the Bashan War and the subsequent Meiji Restoration. Trained in Western ways and equipped with Western weapons, the Choshu destroyed the Shogun's now obsolete samurai army. With the Choshu now in power conditions began to favor an imperial restoration. The Tokugawas continued to lose prestige and the support of the barons. Little by little, the imperial court regained the powers it had granted the shoguns 600 years earlier, the right to allocate territory in particular. By 1866, Emperor Komai began to listen to advisors who had traveled in Europe and America and who warned that Japan, in order to become a world power, had to learn technology and sciences from the Westerners. The new goal became to modernize Japan. Meiji Restoration Becomes Meiji Warfare Emperor Komai died on January 30, 1867. His son, Meiji, 15 years old, became emperor on October 23, 1868. The Meiji Restoration officially started. The events restored practical abilities and consolidated the political system under the Emperor of Japan. The restoration led to enormous changes in Japan's political and social structure and combined the ideas from the late Edo period often called the Bakumatsu and the beginning of the Meiji era. Emperor Meiji began to address his father's ambition. Railroads were constructed across the countryside. The new administration developed industries and built port facilities. A shipyard was built at Yakasuka. With a modernizing trend, several rich trading families including Mitsui, Mitsubishi, Sumitomo, Yasuda, Kawasaki, Tanaka, and Asano began to industrialize and thus gain enormous economic, political, social, and war-making power. Some of these families are still prominent. Beginning in 1869, under the slogan Fukoku Kaiohei, enrich the country, strengthen the military, Japan aggressively industrialized, particularly for military purposes, to compete with the West and attain physical control of the people and resources in Asia. The growth in Japan's per capita GDP in 1869 reflects this industrialization, which continued through the years before World War II. Statistically, Japan's per capita GDP was 23% of Britain's and 30% of the United States. On January 3, 1869, with the approval of the emperor, the leaders of the Setsuma and Choshu clans presented a united front against the Shogun. The imperial palace announced that all power was restored to the emperor. In 1870, Emperor Meiji signed the first conscription law that required all Japanese serve three years active military service, followed by two years reserve. Soon, 10,000 Japanese were being conscripted. By five years later, Japan was building its own ships and the country was manufacturing its own guns and ammunition. As the country approached self-sufficiency, the politicians and the business elite became divided as to the purpose. Some wanted to consolidate and build up the country's resources and others wanted to imitate the West in conquering and acquiring territories, empire building. After several years of internal conflict, the expansionist faction prevailed and with the support of the emperor, moved quickly on this agenda. Among the leading expansionists was Sego Takamori, who had done his best to return the imperial party to power. 
Sego was born on January 23, 1828 at Kagoshima. A giant among his contemporaries, he possessed all the samurai virtues, bravery, generosity, and excellent swordsmanship. Living during the late Edo and early Meiji periods, he was one of the most influential samurai in Japanese history, and one of the two great nobles, the other being Kido Takeyoshi, who led the Meiji Restoration. Sego was not in favor of empowering men he regarded as bureaucrats while he assisted in the degradation of the samurai class. He became a leader in the overthrow of the Tokugawa shogunate. Later, he rebelled against the weaknesses of the imperial government. Having arranged the surrender of the fief of Choshu to the authority of the shogunate in 1864-65, he was a member of the small group who negotiated the secret alliance of Satsuma and Choshu in 1866. He also worked secretly to force the shogun's resignation, which occurred on November 8, 1867. In 1871, after refusing several times, Sego joined the army and was given command of the newly created Imperial Guard, consisting of tens of thousands of troops. During the Bashan War, he led the Japanese forces at the Battle of Toba Fushimi, and then led the Japanese army toward Edo, pushing the surrender of Edo Castle from Katsu Kaishu. Leaving his general's position, he was appointed to the Council of State Dejikan and assumed joint responsibility with Kido Takeyoshi for carrying out the new program. By the end of 1871, the national government had eliminated all potential military positions, and in the summer of 1872, Sego was promoted to the new rank of full general. He became the leading military in the nation who believed that Japan has a divine mission to dominate the world. In 1874, to begin what he called his revolution, Meiji authorized Sego to embark on a punitive expedition to Taiwan in retaliation for the murder of 54 Ryukyuan sailors in December 1871 by indigenous Peiwen near the southwestern tip of Taiwan. The expedition with a total of 13 ships and 3,600 soldiers embarked for Taiwan. The Chinese authorities protested vehemently. Sego and his friends were not worried about Peking's claim. They moved forward with their mission that led to the annexation of the Ryukyus in 1879 and many years later of Taiwan in 1895. The success of the expedition, which marked the first deployment overseas of the Imperial Japanese Army and the Imperial Japanese Navy, revealed China's Qing Dynasty's weak hold on Taiwan and encouraged more Japanese adventurism. In June 1876, Japan began to harry Korea as well. Emperor Meiji dispatched a naval squadron along the Korean coast with a warning that unless Korea opened its country to trade with Japan, the next force to appear would be a fleet of warships. The Koreans were forced to sign the Treaty of Kangwa the same year, which opened three Korean ports to Japan, Busan, Incheon, and Wonsan. The treaty also granted Japanese nationals the same rights in Korea that Westerners enjoyed in Japan, such as extraterritoriality. Article 2 of the treaty stipulated that Japan and Korea would exchange envoys within 15 months and permanently maintain diplomatic missions in each other's country. Article 9 guaranteed both countries the freedom to conduct business without interference from either government and to trade without restrictions or prohibitions. From that time on, China and Japan struggled for control of Korea. Both countries strove to increase their influence in the peninsula. China helped open Korea to the United States and supported the efforts of Koreans for modernization, 
while Japan's commercial relations with Korea emerged much stronger. Meanwhile, within Japan, there were several violent samurai revolts against the Meiji government. As background, in December 1876, the government sent a police officer named Nakahara Hisao and 57 armed men to Kagoshima on the pretense of investigating reports of subversive activities at a private academic school and an artillery school belonging to Sego. The men were captured and confessed that their mission was to assassinate Sego himself. The disaffected samurai in Satsuma believed that a rebellion was necessary in order to protect their leader. On January 30, 1877, unable to prevent the revolt, the Meiji government sent a warship to remove the weapons hoarded at the Kagoshima arsenal. Scandalized by the government's move, 50 students from Sego's academy attacked the Samida arsenal and carried off the weapons. The students' success motivated more than 1,000 other students around Kagoshima to join the revolt. The following month, the government sent a mission led by Hayashi Tamoyuki, an official from the Home Ministry and Adam Kawamura Sumiyoshi, to negotiate with the rebels. Failing in their attempt to stop the rebellion, Hayashi and Kawamura returned to Kobe. On February 12, 1877, in Tokyo, they reported their failure to General Yamagata Eritomo and Ido Hirabumi. Both officials decided to send more troops to quell the movement. Meanwhile, on the same day, after a closed private meeting with his lieutenants Karino Tashiaki and Shinohara Kunamoto, Sego decided to march on Tokyo with a force of several thousand men. On February 14, his men crossed into Kumamoto Prefecture. The commandant of Kumamoto Castle, Major General Tani Teiki, decided to stand on the defensive rather than ordering his forces of 3,800 soldiers and 600 policemen to attack Sego's troops. On February 22, the Sego's army attacked Kumamoto Castle. Despite initial successes, Sego failed to take the castle after several weeks of fighting. On April 12, the Imperial Japanese forces under General Kuroda Kiyotaka, assisted by General Yamakawa Hiroshi, arrived in Kumamoto Prefecture. After an eight-day-long battle with heavy casualties on both sides, the Imperial Army troops were victorious over Sego's rebel men. Each side had suffered more than 4,000 killed or wounded. After a series of victories at Miyakonojo, Noboka, Oida, Seiki, and Shirayama, the majority of Sego's remaining 500 men died fighting rather than surrendering. Only 40 rebels were kept alive. Several of them with Sego had committed seppuku. Sego's revolt against the Meiji government represented the resistance of the old warrior class against the westernization of Japan. This incident could be viewed as the starting point for Japan's empire disaster more expeditionary warfare. Starting in 1879, Japan conquered several groups of small islands not far from its homelands without having to fight for them. The Ryukyu Islands, nominally vassal states of China, ceased paying tribute to the Chinese Qing Dynasty in 1874, and the islands were annexed by Japan in 1879. Okinawa was officially established as a prefecture bringing an end to the 450 years of the Ryukyu Kingdom. Like the Ainu and Ikedo, the Ryukyuan people had their own culture and traditions, many of them suppressed by the Meiji government. In 1880, King Gajon of Korea sent a mission in Japan led by Kim Hong-jip in order to observe the reforms taking place there. While in Tokyo, 
Kim met with Chinese diplomat Huang Zhengxian who presented him a study called Kaoxian Salu, a strategy for Korea. Huang warned his interlocutor of the threat posed to Korea by the Russians and recommended that Korea must work closely with China. He advised the Koreans to seek an alliance with the United States as a counterweight to Russia. In 1880, following Huang's advice, Gajon decided to establish diplomatic ties with the United States. During the talks with the Americans, Chinese officials insisted that the Treaty of Peace, Amity, Commerce and Navigation, also known as the Shufelt Treaty signed in 1882 between the United States and Joseon Korea, should contain an article declaring that Korea was a dependency of China and argued that the country had long been a tributary state of China. The Americans opposed this, arguing that a treaty with Korea should be based on the Treaty of Kangwa, which stipulated that Korea was an independent state. After negotiations through Chinese mediation in Tianjin, a compromise was finally reached, agreeing that the king of Korea would notify the U.S. president in a letter that Korea had special status as a tributary state of China to 3-4 on May 22, 1882, in Incheon, Korea, the Treaty of Peace, Amity, Commerce and Navigation was formally signed. Korea subsequently signed similar trade and commerce treaties with Great Britain and Germany in 1883, Italy and Russia in 1884, and France in 1886. On January 4, 1882, Emperor Meiji issued what is known as the Imperial Rescript for the Military Gunjin Chokuyu. The rescript marked the beginning of a period of rapid change where Japan became less of an isolated feudal state and more of an industrialized and military aggressive nation. The Meiji renovation imposed practical emperor rules on the Japanese. The imposition of their rules led to the modernization and westernization of Japan. Meiji used his imperial authority to abolish feudalism and the samurai, create a constitutional monarchy, and open technology schools and universities. Meanwhile, Japanese leaders such as Edagaki Teisuke, leader of the Jujudo Party, Shijuki Masuda, leader of the Teizekai Party, Okuma Shijinobu, leader of the Rikin Kaishindo Party, and other names such as Ito Hirabumi, Iwakura Tomomi, Kido Takeyoshi, Okubo Toshimo and Yamagata Eritomo were all concerned that Korea was a threat to the national security of Japan. The 1880s discussions in Japan about national security were focused on the issue of Korean reform. As the German military advisor Major Jacob Meckel stated, Korea was a dagger pointed at the heart of Japan. According to Meckel, the proximity of Korea to Japan and the latter's inability to defend itself against outsiders made the country a real threat for Japanese security. The political consensus was that Korea required a program of self-strengthening like the post-restoration reforms that were enacted in Japan. In regard to Meiji leaders, the issue was not whether Korea should be reformed, but how these reforms might be implemented. Fomenting Korea in 1882, the Korean peninsula experienced a severe drop that led to food shortages. Korea was on the verge of bankruptcy. Falling months behind on military pay had caused deep resentment among the soldiers. Thousands of them had been discharged in the process of overhauling the army. A military mutiny and riot broke out in Seoul. The IMO incident began on July 23, 1882. This violent riot was carried out by soldiers of the Korean army who were later joined by disaffected civilians. 
The riot occurred in part because King Gajam's supports for reform and modernization. Many Korean soldiers were worried by the prospect of incorporating Japanese officers in a new army structure. The rioters destroyed homes of high government ministers and occupied Chandiyaka. After the rioters attacked many government buildings in Seoul and released from jail several political prisoners, they turned their attention to the Japanese officials. During the day of rioting, several of them were killed. They went to Lieutenant Horimoto Riaijo's quarters and killed him. The rioters also attacked the home of Min Jyomho, who held joint appointments of Minister of Military Affairs and the high-level official of the agency to bestow blessings. They also lynched Lord Hyungin, Yi Cho Yoon, and attempted to murder Empress Myeongseong after reaching the royal palace. The rioters entered the Japanese ambassador's residence, where Hanabusa Yashitada, the minister to Korea, and 27 staff resided. The rioters threatened to kill all the Japanese inside. Hanabusa gave orders to burn the residence. All important documents were set on fire. The members of the legation escaped through a rear gate, fled to the harbor, and boarded a boat that took them down the Han River to Kamalpo. There, they were again forced to flee after hearing the news coming from Seoul. They escaped to the harbor and were pursued by Korean soldiers. Six Japanese were killed, while another five were seriously wounded. The remainder boarded a small boat and headed for the open sea, where, three days later, they were rescued by a British survey ship, HMS Flying Fish, which took them to Nagasaki. The following day, the rioters entered the Imperial Palace and killed Min Jong-ho, as well as 12 other high-ranking officers. A few weeks later, on the evening of August 30, 1882, Korea and Japan signed the Treaty of Kamalpo. The treaty specified that Korean conspirators would be punished and each Japanese family victimized during the attack would receive 50,000 yen. The Japanese government would also receive 500,000 and permission to station troops at their diplomatic legation in Seoul. Hyusin Diwangan, accused of fomenting the rebellion and its violence, was arrested by Chinese troops and taken to China where he spent three years in custody and only returned to Korea in 1885. The Chinese used the riot to reinforce their influence over Korea. They began to directly interfere in Korean internal affairs. They sent two special foreign affairs advisors to press Chinese interests in Korea. These were Paul George von Mollendorf, a German and close confidant of Lai Hongjin, and the Chinese diplomat Ma Jianzhong. A group of Chinese officers took over the training of the Korean army, providing it with 1,000 rifles, two cannons, and 10,000 rounds of ammunition. The Chingdingyon Capital Guards Command, a new Korean military formation, was created and trained along Chinese lines by Yuan Shikai. In October 1882, China and Korea signed a treaty stipulating that Korea was a dependency of China. Over this treaty, the Koreans gave the Chinese substantial advantages over Japanese and Westerners and granted them unilateral extraterritoriality privileges in civil and criminal cases. Under the treaty, Chinese merchants were granted the right to conduct overland and maritime business freely within its borders. Koreans were allowed reciprocally to trade in Beijing. Korea became a semi-colonial state of China with many thousands of Chinese troops stationed in the country to protect Chinese interests. In January 1885, the Japanese dispatched two battalions and seven warships to Korea, 
This threat resulted in the Japan-Korea Treaty of 1885, also known as the Treaty of Hanseon, signed on January 9, 1885. The treaty not only restored diplomatic relations between Japan and Korea broken since the Bunroku Kaiko War at the end of the 16th century, but Korea also agreed to pay the Japanese 10,000 yen for damages to their legation three years earlier and to provide a site for the building of a new legation. Meanwhile, Prime Minister Ito Hirabumi, in order to seek peace with China, visited the country and met Lai Hongjin. The two parties signed the Convention of Tianjin, an agreement signed between the Qing Dynasty of China and the Empire of Japan in Tianjin, China on April 18, 1885. Under the agreement, both countries, China and Japan agreed to withdraw their troops from Korea. They also pledged to notify each other if in the future they would send any troops to Korea. One year later, this agreement failed. Tensions between Japan and China rose starting with the Nagasaki incident on August 13, 1886. Of their side, the Russians were watching and waiting for an opportunity to enter Korea. One came when Korea sought to modernize its army. The Russians offered military trainers in exchange for them to use the port of Wonsan, which they called Port of Laser. The Koreans were open to the idea. However, China and Japan opposed it, and together they succeeded in stopping it. They did not, however, eliminate Russia's desire for an entry to and foothold in Korea, something that continues up to this day. Political Turmoil By 1886, various popular movements emerged in Japan. The liberal and progressive parties competed to impose their views. The liberals wanted popular democracy, while the progressives also wanted democracy, but to a lesser degree. Both parties were supported by the oligarchs, particularly the Mitsui and the Mitsubishi, who quarreled for personal political position in order to achieve their political and moral goals. These two families, first rice merchants, then bankers and industrialists, had become the most important corporations in Japan. Mitsui took over the liberals and Mitsubishi supported the progressives. And thus, the Zaibatsu was born, the political economic cartel in Japan grouping industrial and financial business conglomerates whose influence and size exercised control over big parts of Japan's economy from the Meiji period until the end of World War II. During the same interval, other political alignments arose. These included groups of belligerent samurai seeking variously to overthrow the government, return to the days of feudalism, or to invade Korea. On the one hand, the pacifist Seikenren faction was not in favor of invading Korea. On the other hand, the Bakufu clan, dating back to Japan's feudal military government days, approximately 1,600 to 1868, favored Japanese expansion into the Pacific and East Asia. Japan, in 1889, had trade relations with the United States and Korea, and essentially lorded over Taiwan and the Ryukyu Islands. Nevertheless, Emperor Meiji and his government faced enormous social and political tensions, particularly from the nationalists, a faction led by General Prince Yamagata Aritomo, also known as Kaiosuke Yamagata. Yamagata was among the Meiji oligarchy and the main architect of militarism in early Japan. It was he who brought the major issue of extraterritoriality of the Europeans in Japan. Anti-foreigner sentiment was so strong in Japan at that time that when centrist foreign minister Okuma Shijinobu was attempting to renegotiate the unequal treaties with the Western powers in 1889, 
a member of the Genosha faction attacked him with a bomb and blew off his right leg. The treaty negotiated by Okuma was perceived by these extremists as too conciliatory to the West. Okuma's attack was so shocking that the whole cabinet resigned. It was replaced by a government under hawkish General Yamagata Eritomo, the result of an agreement among the Choshu and Setsuma clans. The Constitution of the Empire of Japan, known informally as the Meiji Constitution, was proclaimed by Emperor Meiji on February 11, 1889. It was a form of mixed constitutional charter and absolute monarchy. By that time, the Imperial Japanese Army had increased to 73,000 men with a reserve that would bring it to 274,000 troops in a time of war. The Imperial Japanese Navy was building 23 ships. The Army and Navy together accounted for a third of the Japanese government's budget. The ambition to build a big army was rationalized not because another nation was threatening Japan, but by the fact that Japan wanted to expand its territory as the Western nations. United Kingdom, United States, France, Denmark, Netherlands, Portugal, Germany, and Russia that had established colonies all around Japan. In regard of the Japanese officials, Japan must gain colonies of its own. In accordance with provisions of the Meiji Constitution, Japan's first general election for the lower house of the National Assembly was held on July 1, 1890. Although the regular election of the 245 members of the House of Councillors Dainijugokai, Sangyinji, and Senkyo resulted in victory for the liberal and progressive parties. However, the real power was held by the oligarchs represented by the Prime Minister. The new Japanese constitutional government with Prime Minister Yamagata Eritomo was controlled by the military. Yamagata was one of seven political leaders, later called the Genro that came to dominate the government of Japan. Yamagata held a large and devoted power base in the officers of the army and the militarists. He became the towering leader of Japanese conservatives. He profoundly distrusted all democratic institutions and devoted the action of his government to build and defend the political power of the army. He has been considered by the historians as the father of Japanese militarism. The year 1891 was a troubled one. When the first government of Yamagata fell, the oligarchs chose a member of the Setsuma clan, Matsukata Masayoshi, to become prime minister. As background in 1868, Matsukata was appointed governor of Hida Prefecture by Okubo Tashimichi, who was the powerful minister of the interior for the new Meiji government. As governor, Matsukata instituted several reforms including road building, starting the port of Beppu and many other infrastructural projects. He moved to Tokyo in 1871 and began drafting laws for the land tax reform of 1873 to 1881. He became Lord Home Minister in 1880. In the following year, when the Japanese economy was in crisis due to huge inflation, he became Lord Finance Minister. He introduced a policy of fiscal restraint that resulted in what has come to be called the Matsukata deflation. The economy was eventually stabilized and he established the Bank of Japan in 1882. But when he sought to protect Japanese industry from foreign competition, he was restricted by the unequal treaties. Appointed Prime Minister, Prince Ito Hirabumi named Matsukata Finance Minister. Matsukata kept this position during the three years Hirabumi was head of the cabinet and during the term of the next government. During this period, he instituted numerous fiscal reforms, 
cut spending and most importantly, returned Japan to a silver-backed currency. He favored privatization and thus sold several unproductive government holdings. In just 18 months, he deflated the national money supply by 14%. This decision caused agricultural land prices to plummet by 50%. On May 6, 1891, Yamagata resigned and Matsukata was appointed prime minister during which time he concurrently was finance minister. One major political faction that Matsukata was forced to deal with during his time in office was the Black Ocean Society. This influential and secret Pan-Asianist organization active in Japan was founded as the Koyosha by Katero Hurayaka, a wealthy ex-samurai and mine owner with interests in Manchuria. The Black Ocean Society was an ultranationalist group. It operated with the support of certain powerful figures in the Japanese government, such as Toyama Mitsuru and other former samurai of the Fukuoka domain. The group was powerful enough to demand concessions from the government. On February 15, 1892, Japan held its second general election for members of the House of Representatives of the Diet. Historically, the 1892 election was the most violent in Japanese history, with numerous riots, in which 25 people were killed and 388 wounded. Violence was particularly severe in areas of the country in which support for the opposition Liberal Party Jiuto was strong. Encouraged by the government led by Matsukata, police chiefs arrested candidates alleged by the officials as disloyal and used games to harass voters and burn opposition politicians' property. Prefectural governors were secretly ordered to disrupt campaigns of the opposition's leaders and aid pro-government supporters. Ballot boxes were stolen in Kachai Prefecture and voting was made impossible in parts of Saga, Ishikawa, and Fukuoka Prefectures. Despite the violence, the so-called Minto or the Rikin Kaishinto Liberal Parties and their affiliates maintained their majority in the House of Representatives, winning 132 seats as opposed to 124 for pro-government candidates, with 44 independents. Facing an angry lower house, even members of the House of Peers were outraged with the manner in which the election was held on May 11. Matsukata was forced to resign. He was replaced by Ido Hirabumi, who became on December 22. 1885, the new Prime Minister of Japan. Hirabumi's political career started when Okubo Tashimichi was assassinated on May 14, 1878 in Tokyo by Shimada Ikiro and six other samurai of the Kaga domain. He succeeded Tashimichi as Minister of Home Affairs. His advancement brought him into conflict with Okuma Shijinobu, the leader of the Rikin Kaishinto Progressive Party credited as being one of the major forces behind the introduction of modern democratic government to Japan. Hirabumi forced Shijinobu and supporters out of the government in 1881, and soon after that, he persuaded Emperor Meiji to adopt Japan's first constitution. The new constitution came into force in February 1889, and in 1890, the National Diet was established. Chapter 2 bad neighbor syndrome. Japan's road to war began many decades before the attack at Pearl Harbor. At the end of 1800, the Japanese decided to expand Japan's territory in Asia. According to the Japanese officials, this decision would help the country to get resources that it would need, particularly oil. Japan's desire to build a modern industrial civilization drove it through politics of extension.
Near the turn of the 20th century, the Japanese embarked on a period of aggressive expansion to change the trajectory of their nation, isolated from the rest of the world for much of its history. Nationalist Japanese leaders believed that Western powers such as the United States, Britain, France, and Russia had enacted tariffs that prevented Japan from accessing natural resources that it needed to develop its industrial capacity. At the end of July 1894, Japanese troops attacked Chinese forces that outposted the peninsula of Korea. Four days later, on August 1, 1894, Japan declared war on China. War against China Japan's decision-making to go to war with China was motivated by the nation's interest to become a great power. The First Sino-Japanese War occurred for diverse reasons. First, Japan and China competed for influence in Korea. Second, the Japanese wanted to add the island of Formosa in their territory. China's military became a threat and Japan did not tolerate that China closed its ports to Japanese vessels. The dispute between Japan and China over control of Korea reached its apogee between 1890 and 1894. By the early 1890s, Chinese influence in Korea had increased. Japan was looking for an excuse to deploy more troops in the peninsula in order to take control of Korea. An excuse came in 1894 when a band of anti-Japanese Koreans called the Tonhak rebelled against the Korean government. Korea called for the military assistance of China. The Chinese sent several thousands of troops to quell the rebellion. The Japanese on alert also quickly rushed troops into Korea. With the rebellion crushed, neither side withdrew. On July 23, 1894, the Japanese invaded the king of Korea's palace in Seoul and forced him to sign an agreement that would push the Chinese out of the peninsula. Two days later, in July 25, during the Battle of Pundo, off of San Chungcheong Namdu, the Japanese cruiser Naniwa Kan, commanded by Togo Hayakairo, sank a British-owned steamship, the Kaohsiung, as it transported Chinese troops and officers to Korea. After that tragedy, war was officially declared between China and Japan. This was the starting point of the First Sino-Japanese War. When the war began on August 1, 1894, China held a clear advantage over Japan. China's military far outnumbered Japan's forces. Nearly 900,000 Chinese soldiers to Japan's 120,000 and twice as many warships. China's officer training school, the Tainsen Military Academy, was established in 1885, nine years before the war. As early as 1875, Emery Upton, an American general, had suggested to Lai Hongjin, one of the most powerful officials in China, and leader of the self-strengthening movement to establish a Chinese military academy. Lai rejected Upton's proposal as too expensive for nine professors and instructors from the United States and a six-year program of instruction in the English language. In 1885, ten years later, Lai Hongjin founded the Chanjin Military Academy for Chinese Army officers with German advisors. Meanwhile, Japan borrowed the British Royal Navy as a model. Reforms under the Meiji government gave significant priority to the armed forces. The country modernized its national army and navy with special emphasis on warship construction. In addition, Japan sent numerous officers abroad for training. Those officers had to observe and evaluate the relative strengths and tactics of Western armies and navies. 
British advisors were sent to Japan to train the naval establishment, while Japanese students, in turn, went to England to study and observe the Royal Navy. Through drilling and tuition by Royal Navy instructors, Japan developed expertise in the arts of gunnery and steamships. Dated in 1885, Jacob Meckel, a former general in the German army and a veteran of the Franco-Prussian War 1870-1871, used his experience as a military advisor to bring the Japanese armed forces to a high level of efficiency. Following Germany's victory over France, the Japanese invited Meckel, with the rank of major at the time, to Japan. Meckel became a professor at the Army Staff College and an advisor to the General Staff of the Imperial Japanese Army. From this position, he worked closely with future Prime Ministers Taro Katsura and Yamagata Aritomo and with Army strategist Gen Kawakami Soroku. He helped to reorganize the War Ministry, refine the General Staff, improve military education, and develop systems of logistics and medical services. He also helped to restructure the army into divisions and taught the Japanese the demands of full-scale mobilization, including a strategic railway network, a new conscription act, and improved staff exercises. Altogether, it could be said that Meckel had a tremendous impact on the development of Japan's military. He is credited with having introduced Clausewitz's military theories and the Prussian concept of war games, Kriegspiel, as a way to refine fighting tactics. To honor his services in 1910, the Japanese displayed his bust in front of the Army Staff College in Kiraeyama, Manito, Tokyo, where he taught. By 1872, the Japanese government introduced conscription, i.e. forced military service to promote military consciousness, attitudes and practice among the people. At the same time, it created centralized military and naval academies and sent Japanese officers abroad for additional training. In 1878, an independent general staff was created, and in 1883 a staff college. Close cooperation was ensured between the Army and Navy. At the start of the hostilities with China in 1893, the Imperial Japanese Navy comprised a fleet of 12 modern ships, 8 corvettes, 1 ironclad warship, 26 torpedo boats, and numerous auxiliary armed merchant cruisers, and converted ocean inners. The Japanese also had a relatively large merchant navy, which at the beginning of 1894 consisted of 288 vessels. Of these, 66 belonged to the Nippon Yusen Kaisha Shipping Company that Japan subsidized to maintain the vessels for use by the navy in case of war. Consequently, even without a large fleet of battleships, Japan could call on enough numbers of auxiliaries and transports. When fighting began on August 1, 1894, most military experts had predicted an easy victory for China. China, they said, had several advantages over Japan. Its army was vast and its navy was strong. They both outnumbered and outweighed Japan's capability. Foreign observers considered a Japanese victory improbable. However, in an interview with Reuters News Service, German officer William Lang predicted that despite significant Chinese advantages, the Japanese forces would win the war due to critical operational weaknesses that ultimately doomed China lack of a unified command, lack of regular pay and medical care for its soldiers, failure to appreciate the importance of naval power or to use an appropriate naval battle formation. Lang continued to say, China only has one operable railway, poorly maintained roads, encryption broken by Japan, a defensive strategic posture, 
and the country has been unable to mobilize international sympathy. Lang states that, at the end, there is no doubt that Japan must be utterly crushed the Chinese army and navy. By mid-September 1894, the Japanese navy controlled the Gulf of Chicli avoiding the Chinese and ordered to ship reinforcements to Korea by sea. They captured Port Arthur on November 21. Following a victory at Lushan, the same month, General Yamagata prepared to march on Beijing. By March 1895, the Japanese forces had successfully invaded Shandong province in Manchuria and had fortified ports that commanded the sea approaches to Beijing. China, after suffering more than six months of unbroken losses to Japan's land and naval forces, and the loss of the port of Waihewei, sued for peace in February 1895. Despite the formal opening of peace talks at Shimonoski, Japanese ships bombarded and landed troops on the Pescadores Islands. The surrender of the Pescadores resulted in China's cession of those islands to Japan, including Taiwan and the Treaty of Shimonoski on April 17, 1895. The treaty demanded cession of the Liaodong Peninsula as well. The conflict between the Qing Dynasty of China and the Empire of Japan over influence in Joseon, Korea, ended in February 1895. In April 1895, China was forced to give up its claims to vassal suzerainty over Korea. The same year, under the guise of protecting Korea, Japanese plotters, with official connivance, murdered Empress Myeongseong. By the end of 1895, Japanese troops occupied Korea. The successful war that Japan won against China, 1894-95, also added the Ryukyus to its empire. Japan's victory over China demonstrated the Qing Dynasty's failure to modernize Chinese military and fend off threats to its sovereignty. For the first time, regional dominance in East Asia shifted from China to Japan. Some claimed Prime Minister Ito Hirabumi had arranged the war to cement his political control of Japan. The war rather came from the pressure that Hirabumi received from several different political and economic interests in Japan that wanted further expansion in order to build a vast empire. Starting in 1895, Japan had the strongest and most successful army and navy in Asia. Following their victory over China 1894 to 1895, the Japanese decided, in 1904, to go to war against Russia over rival imperial ambitions in Manchuria and Korea. War against Russia In 1904, the Russian Empire was one of the largest territorial powers in the world, with vast territories in Eastern Europe and Central Asia under its control. Since the late 19th century, Russian political influence in Asia had become a major problem for many countries in the region, especially Japan and China, which considered Russia as a real threat for them. As several Western powers that established diplomatic relations with Japan and China, Russia obtained concessions from China after the Second Opium War, 1856-1860. Under the Treaty of Agon in 1858 and the Treaty of Beijing in 1860, China ceded to Russia's extensive trading rights and regions adjacent to the Amur and Ushery rivers. The Chinese allowed Russia to begin building a port and naval base at Vladivostok. The 1856 Treaty of Paris, signed at the end of the Crimean War, demilitarized the Black Sea and deprived Russia of southern Bessarabia. The treaty gave the West European powers the nominal duty of protecting Christians living in the Ottoman Empire, removing that role from Russia, 
which had been designated as such a protector in the 1774 Treaty of Kuchikinergy. Russia lost naval access to the Black Sea. By 1867, the logic of the balance of power and the cost of developing and defending the Amur Ushery region dictated that Russia sell Alaska to the United States in order to acquire much needed funds. In the late 1800s, Russia faced major domestic problems. In 1891, a famine claimed a half million lives. The activities by Japan and China near Russia's borders were perceived as threats from abroad. In 1894, the accession of Tsar Nicholas Roman II upon the death of Alexander Roman III had changed the country's foreign policy's agenda. At the turn of the century, Russia's ambition to strengthen its dominance in Asia was facilitated by its alliance with France and the growing rivalry between Britain and Germany. By 1895, Germany was competing with France for Russia's favor and British statesmen hoped to negotiate with the Russians to delimit spheres of influence in Asia. This situation enabled Russia to intervene in northeastern Asia after Japan's victory over China in 1895. In the negotiations that followed, Japan was forced to make concessions in the Liaotung Peninsula and Port Arthur in southern Manchuria. The next year, Russia got France capital to establish the Russo-Chinese Bank. The goal of the bank was to finance the construction of a railroad across northern Manchuria and thus shorten the Trans-Siberian Railroad. Within two years, Russia had acquired leases on the Liaotung Peninsula and Port Arthur and had begun building a trunk line from Harbin in central Manchuria to Port Arthur on the coast. In March 1898, the Russians forced China to grant them a lease covering Port Arthur, Dern, and much of the Kwantun Peninsula in the southern Liaoning province. Under this agreement, Russia took control of this strategic region for 25 years with renewal options. In the early years of the 20th century, Russia had increased its control over most of Manchuria, stationing troops in key points of the region. While with the Siberian shipping center of Vladivostok forced to close for much of the winter months, Russia sought a warm water port on the Pacific Ocean for its navy and for maritime trade. Vladivostok was operational only during the summer, whereas Port Arthur, a naval base in Liaodong province leased to Russia by China, was operational all year. In 1900, China reacted to foreign encroachments on its territory with a popular, armed uprising, the Boxer Rebellion. Russian military contingents joined forces with Japan, France, and the United States to restore order in northern China. A force of 180,000 Russian troops fought to pacify part of Manchuria and secure its railroads. Three years later, the Japanese were backed by Britain and the United States and insisted that Russia evacuate Manchuria. Japan, after its victory over China during the First Sino-Japanese War, was widely viewed as the dominant force in Asia. Seeing Russia as a rival, Japan offered to recognize Russian dominance in Manchuria, and Japan would have maintained influence over Korea. Russia refused and demanded that Korea north of the 39th parallel be a neutral zone between Russia and Japan. Based on the superiority of his forces, Tsar Nicholas Roman II knew that Japan would not take any chances to go to war against Russia. Since the 1900 Boxer Rebellion, Russia had deployed more than 150,000 troops to Manchuria. The Tsar boasted a first-class naval base at Vladivostok and another on the southern tip of Manchuria, at Lushan, which was home to seven battleships, 10 cruisers, 25 destroyers, 
and an assortment of gunboats. The Tsar also knew Russia had three times the population of Japan, eight times its gross national product, twice its per capita standard of living, and seven times its armed forces. The war would ultimately cost Tokyo 8.5 times what the first Sino-Japanese War had cost Datuman. On February 8, 1904, after negotiations between Japan and Russia broke down, the Japanese Navy surprise attacked the Russian Eastern Fleet at Port Arthur. The same day, Japan formally declared war against Russia. The Imperial Japanese Navy, commanded by Adam Togo Hayakairo, sent torpedo boats to attack Russian naval vessels, significantly damaging three of them, Sesarvich, Ritizin, and Polota. On April 12, 1904, two Russian battleships that tried to evade the Japanese attack did not escape undamaged. Japanese torpedo boats sank the Petropavlovsk and caused the Pobeda to return to Port Arthur heavily damaged. In August 1904, forces from northern Russia sent to assist the fleet at Port Arthur were defeated by the Japanese in a series of battles. Battle of the Yellow Sea, August 10, 1904. Battle of Olsen, August 14, 1904. Battle of Korsakov, August 20, 1904. Battle of Lyoane, August 24, 1904. Battle of Shaho, October 5 17, 1904. Battle of Sandipu, January 25 29, 1905. Battle of Mukden, February 20, March 10, 1905. And Battle of Tsushima, May 27 28, 1905. By mid-1905, the Japanese Navy had sunk every ship in Russia's Pacific Fleet. The hostilities ended with the Treaty of Portsmouth mediated by American President Theodore Roosevelt and signed on September 5, 1905. Japan's decisive military victory not only surprised military experts in the world, but changed the balance of power in East Asia. It was the first major military victory of an Asian power over a European one. Defeating Russia in 1905, then Japan took the south half of Sakhalin and the southern tip of Manchuria, known as the Liaodong Peninsula. At this time, Japan's empire consisted of the home islands, the Ryukyus and the Kuril Islands, which stretch approximately 1,300 kilometers, 810 miles, northeast from Hokkaido, separating the Sea of Okhotsk from the North Pacific Ocean and which Japan had acquired in a compromise with Russia by giving up claims to the southern half of Sakhalin Island. Two-four, the next step became the annexation of Korea. Annexation of Korea In 1898, America's ambition to control the Caribbean Sea and bring Cuba under its power resulted in a conflict between the United States and Spain. On April 25, 1898, the United States declared war against Spain. During the hostilities on May 1, 1898, just 10 days after the USS Maine exploded in Havana Harbor, the American Asiatic Squadron, led by Commodore George Dewey, sailed from its base in Hong Kong to Manila Bay in the Philippine Islands, where it sought out and sank the Spanish Pacific Fleet. In the initial naval engagement, 167 Spanish sailors were killed and 214 wounded out of a total of 1,875 sailors. The Americans had no deaths and only seven wounded out of 1,748 men in action. 
As a result of this victory, the United States took the Philippines from Spain and acquired the region's second largest archipelago after the Dutch East Indies. With this conquest, the United States became Japan's neighbor to the south and its regional rival. A series of discussions and meetings were held since 1905 between officials of Japan and the United States regarding the position of the two nations in greater East Asian affairs, especially regarding the status of Korea and Philippines in the aftermath of Japan's victory in the Russo-Japanese War. On July 27, 1905, the two countries reached an agreement. The United States recognized Japan's sphere of influence in Korea. In exchange, Japan recognized the United States' sphere of influence in the Philippines. This agreement was signed by United States Secretary of War William Howard Taft and Prime Minister of Japan Count Taro Katsura. Under the Taft-Katsura agreement, Japan would control Korea if it would keep its hands off the Philippines.25. On August 22, 1910, five years after the Taft-Katsura agreement, Japan annexed Korea.26 Iwanion, Prime Minister of Korea, and Terachi Masatake, who became the first Japanese Governor General of Korea, signed the Japan-Korea Annexation Treaty. In the treaty, Emperor Gajon of Korea lost his title. He received a new one, King Emeritus of Deoksu, and was recognized as a member of the Imperial Family of Japan. Soon the new governor of Japan and Korea took drastic measures to break any resistance of the Korean population. It forbade any association and meeting of Koreans, and any insubordinates were severely oppressed by the gendarmes in order to counter popular uprisings. To create a colonial economy that served Japan, Masatake proclaimed a decree on societies. The aim was to crush Korean capital and turn Korea into a market of Japanese capitalism. Masatake undertook land investigations set to determine land ownership. Upon investigation, the general government appropriated the lands belonging to the former royal court and abandoned lands, and these lands were distributed to Japanese settlers or spread to the Koreans through the eastern colonization. Thousands of dispossessed Koreans immigrated to Manchuria. The 1910 Annexation Treaty, while making Korea an integral part of Japan, had subjected the de facto peninsula to ruthless colonial rule. This period of occupation provided irrefutable evidence of atrocities of the Japanese army against the Korean. Andre Faber, in his book, History of Korea, notes that once fully mastered Korea, the Japanese made every effort to exploit it to the fullest, deprive it of its soul, and make it a loyal province of His Majesty the Emperor of Japan. By 1911, all Korean forests were under the control of the Japanese government, which implemented a policy of massive deforestation to increase the country's agricultural area. In 1912, Japanese authorities took control of the Korean fisheries and permitted Japanese fishermen to exploit Korean waters. In the early 1930s, under Hirohito's rule, Japan took 40% of the Korean land to increase rice production for export to Japan. Land expropriations in the countryside led Korean peasants to rural exodus or immigration to Manchuria or Siberia, sometimes to Japan's mainland, where their status as migrant workers forced them to work in ruthless conditions. In the industrial sector, the share of capital invested by the Japanese in 1929 was ten times greater than that provided by the Koreans. Despite the new activities developed by the occupiers in the country, the Japanese occupation corresponded to an impoverishment of the Korean population, 
both in the countryside and the city. Koreans were forced to supply rice or raw materials such as wool and cotton to limit the cost of Japan's imports into third countries, while at the same time, the low cost of Korean labor encouraged Japanese entrepreneurs to settle on the peninsula without giving any benefit to the inhabitants. In 1939, the Japanese authorities imposed a compulsory labor service on Koreans for more than 4 million people in 1945, including 1,260,000 employed in Japan as unskilled labor. In 1941, with the Japanese occupation relying on 60,000 police officers supported by 180,000 auxiliaries, the situation of Koreans worsened, especially that of peasants, 70% of the population, who now saw two-thirds of the rice crops sent to Japan. During the war, Koreans were mobilized in the Japanese army. At the same time, tens of thousands of young Korean women were being abducted from their families to serve as comfort girls in pleasure homes reserved for the Japanese military throughout occupied Asia. Chapter 3. Training a Tyrant A Prince Was Born Japan's longest-reigning monarch, Emperor Hirohito was born Michinamiya Hirohito on April 29, 1901 in the Aoyama Palace in Tokyo. Hirohito was the first grandson of Emperor Matsuhito and the first son of Crown Prince Yoshihito, later Emperor Taisho, and Princess Sadako, later Empress Taimei. Being the first male child in the family, Hirohito was destined to carry on the tradition of an imperial line whose descent is traced in legend from Amaterasu Omikami, the sun, goddess in the pantheon of Shinto. According to Japanese tradition, the imperial line began in 660 BC with the legendary emperor Jimmu, considered as a direct descendant of the sun goddess Amaterasu. Around the third century AD, this imperial clan defeated rival chieftains and first asserted dominance over central and western Japan. The imperial institution survived for more than 2,600 years despite some individual emperors being deposed and others murdered from court intrigues. For the next several hundred years, power shifted to various aristocratic and military clans. In 1868, the leaders of what is now called the Meiji Restoration claimed. The reestablishment of direct imperial rule. Three Japan became a centralized nation-state with the emperor as the symbol of national unity. Loyalty to him was expected to be a sacred duty and a patriotic obligation. Assuming the position of highest priest of the Shinto cult and claiming to be of divine ancestry, the Japanese emperor presented himself with an aura of sacred inviolability. Hirohito was born into this 2,600-year lineage. Upon his birth, scholars of the imperial court sought an appropriate name for him. They found a passage written by Confucius in the year 500 BC about instructions given by a Chinese emperor to his young brother that said, Make yourself broad-minded and let people live in comfort. The Chinese character that Japanese pronounce Hiro was taken from the classic Chinese rendering of the word broad-minded, and was combined with the word Hito meaning benevolence, which is part of the personal name of every Japanese emperor. Five. Matsuhito was still emperor when Hirohito was born in 1901. Following imperial custom, the emperor chose to have his grandson raised not by his parents, but by a surrogate family that could teach him the merits of honor and discipline. Therefore, while only a few months old, 
Hirohito was taken to the residence of ex-Navy minister and former vice-admiral, Count Kawamura Sumiyoshi.6 when Kawamura died three years later, in November 1904, at age 67, Hirohito and his younger brother Chichibu no Miya Yasukito Shino, born in 1902, rejoined their parents. At the Tagu Gosho, the Crown Prince's Palace in Akasaka. On January 3, 1905, Hirohito's second brother, Takamatsu no Miya Nabuhito, was born.7. At the Aoyama Palace, the Taisho Emperor goes for a walk with his sons, the Prince Regent, Hirohito, and Prince Chichibu. Education A firm believer in Confucianism, Bushido, and the precepts of Zen, Nogi favored a strict military-style education for Hirohito. Under the routine he established, the young prince had a very difficult schedule. He awoke early in the morning for prayers to honor the sun goddess and emperor Meiji. Then he attended lessons. He was instructed in many subjects considered important for the education of an emperor. Math, physics, economics, calligraphy, language, French, Chinese and Japanese, ethics, martial arts, and natural history. All were part of Teigaku, the making of an emperor. Before the Meiji Constitution, Monarchs in Japan were educated in subjects such as abstract Confucian philosophical texts and practiced reciting Shinto prayers. Hirohito's education as the future emperor was well prepared and meticulously oriented. First, he attended the Gakushuin Peers School from 1908 to 1914 and was tutored by the special institute established for the crown prince's education. An academy called Tagu Gogekumancho took over his tutelage from May 4, 1914 until late February 1921. From 1914 to 1921, Dr. Hirotero Hattori became Hirohito's teacher of natural history and physics. Under Hattori's guidance, Hirohito read Darwin's theory of evolution, as interpreted by the popular writer Asajiro Oka, whose book Shinkaren Kawa Lectures on Evolution was published in 1904. Hirohito developed at this early age an interest in marine biology. Hattori remained his mentor and chief scientific collaborator for more than 30 years. He accompanied him on many collecting expeditions and also served as his scientific proxy. He wrote to European naturalists and distributing specimen collections on the emperor's behalf. Hirohito's regular military teachers at the Ogekumanjo School included the president of the Peers School, Asako Neaharu. Asako, the older brother of General Naimichi, was a general in the early Imperial Japanese Army and expert on the Russo-Japanese War. Capt. Sato Tetsutero, who served as a lieutenant in 1892, as chief navigator aboard the gunboat Akagi, delivered lectures to Hirohito on the American Admiral Alfred Thayer Mahan's theories of naval power, especially those explained in his first two books. The Influence of Sea Power Upon History, 1660-1783, and The Influence of Sea Power Upon the French Revolution and Empire, 1793-1812. From Mahan's theories, Hirohito learned how having a strong presence on the seas is one of the biggest factors that help a country win wars and become an influential world. Power According to Mahan, control of the sea by a large fleet of battleships was key to successful expansionist. Sato also lectured Hirohito on Western and Japanese military history, including the Battle of the Sea of Japan, 
May 1905, in which the combined Japanese fleet with large British-made battleships under Admiral Togod destroyed the Russian Baltic Squadron, effectively ending the Russian-Japanese War. Prince Fushimi Hirayasu, Hirohito's uncle, supervised the first stage of his royal nephew's naval training, which started in July 1916. Hirohito's army lecturers were Generals Yugaki Kazushige and Naratechi. Yugaki was sent as a military attaché to Germany from 1902 to 1904 again from 1906 to 1907. In 1910, he was promoted to colonel, in 1915 was promoted to major general. In 1917, he participated in planning the Siberian expedition to stop the spread of the Russian Revolution into that region. During Hirohito's last year at the Tagu Gagekumancho Academy, Nara drafted a seven-point guideline for the Crown Prince's continued education, stating that he should emphasize military affairs and take a deep interest in commanding the country's army and navy. Nara prepared him for the different role he was to play as an emperor, taught him the nation's history, which combined elements of nationalism and racism in the myth of his descent from the gods. Under Nara's direction, Hirohito mastered horsemanship and practiced firing weapons. Suji Rashidstake, an ultranationalist Confucian educator, lectured Hirohito on the principles that should guide his behavior. In his lectures, Sujira named several great men in world history whose lives illustrated the value of knowledge. Among them were Jean-Jacques Rousseau, for his philosophy of education and independence of thought, George Washington, for his sense of justice and fair play, and Thomas Robert Malthus, for his ideas on population growth and economic change. Another fundamental point was that Hirohito had to respect all the rules contained in Meiji's Charter Oath of Five Articles 1868, which included the statement, Knowledge shall be sought throughout the world so as to strengthen the foundation of imperial rule and the imperial rescript on education 1890. Sujiura regarded the Charter Oath as an important document for political reasons. The document stated that deliberative assemblies shall be widely established and all matters decided by public discussion, and that all classes, high, low, shall unite in vigorously carrying out the administration of affairs of state. Sujira pointed out that the Meiji Constitution had endorsed that vision by providing for an elected lower house of representatives, as well as an appointed upper house of peers. Together, the Charter of Oath and the Constitution signified that the Japanese monarchy had reached a new stage in its historical evolution, that of constitutional monarchy. Sujira's lectures to Hirohito illustrated a crucial link between domestic reform and maritime expansion, while demonstrating a debt to the new ideologies of Japanism and liberalism. His teachings revealed a distinctive strain of colonial thought that envisioned people on the periphery of a unified Japan, from only merchants to social outcasts, as central agents of expansion. Dynasty Emperor Meiji died on July 30, 1912. His son, Crown Prince Yoshihito, Hirohito's father, became emperor, and Hirohito was formally named Crown Prince in a special national ceremony that was held on November 2 that year. He was 11 years old. Eight years later, Hirohito attained the ranks of Major of the Imperial Japanese Army and Lieutenant Commander of the Imperial Japanese Navy. A year later, after graduating from the Agekimanjo School, he began a six-month trip to England and continental Europe on March 3, 1921. Dressed as a naval officer, 
he boarded the 16,000-ton Japanese battleship Katori off the coast of Hayama. Several nobles accompanied him, including some cousins and his uncle, Gen Prince Naruhiko Higashikumi.